You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, if you haven't done so already. would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, if you want to follow along and don't have one, you can grab one of the black pew Bibles in front of you and turn to page 9 as we're going to work our way through these nine verses that Katie just read for us this morning. As we begin, I've been thinking a lot, uh, like probably many of you, about our culture, and we seem to be confronted daily with where uh, our culture is and maybe where we are, and we live right now in a time and in a place where Christianity doesn't seem to have the high standing that it once had, uh, you would say, in like the common ethos of our culture. But while we recognize that, in these tolerant days, we also recognize that it is still great to be a person of faith, so long as that means I have a highly personalized system of values and beliefs, and I recognize that you have a highly personalized system of values and beliefs, and I would never want to impose my standards on you. If that's what you mean by a person of faith, you will be welcomed in our culture, in fact, probably even celebrated. It doesn't so matter uh, it doesn't so much matter what you believe in, only that you believe in something that guides your life. So we live in a culture that has decided they have the freedom and the right to decide how and even if they will relate to God. And yet as we pick our story up in Genesis 12, what we have been seeing from the very beginning of the Bible, the very first book, this book of Genesis, we've been seeing it's not so much a matter of how we choose or if we choose to interact with God, but rather how God has told us and shown us how he is going to relate to us. In fact, in the very beginning that we studied that God had made all of the cosmos And then he made mankind different, special, unique from the rest of creation. And he was going to have a relationship with them that different than any of the rest of creation, that these human uh, beings would be, have this spiritual awareness of their relationship with God, but also the culpability of being responsible for the way in which they may reject that relationship with God. So God established in the very beginning his relationship with mankind and what it would look like. And the Bible teaches us that we were made in his image. We were God's people. The Bible showed us that we were, he, he put the first man and first woman in this beautiful garden sanctuary that we, we call Eden. It was the place in which God would interact with his people and they would experience his blessing. And then he gave them a purpose. And as we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, it wasn't just for that small garden, but it really was a global purpose, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with image bearers that would glorify the name of God. God's people in God's place, fulfilling God's purpose for them. It didn't take very long though, did it? Just a, just a chapter or two later, in which mankind, our first parents, decided that they became enamored with the possibility of making their own name great. That when childlike dependence on the Father began to become distasteful, 
uncomfortable, and even unfulfilling. And so the fall was complete when man decided to make much of his own name, to promote his own glory instead of God's glory. When he decided that he would scorn the relationship that God had set up to have with man, instead he would do it his own way. And so when Adam fell, so did the whole human race. And the punishment for that broken relationship is not of small consequences. In fact, it was matters of life and death. For Adam and Eve, when they sinned, death was was cursed upon them. Physical death eventually, spiritual death immediately. They were cursed with the possibility of eternal separation from the God who had created them. They were no longer God's people the way they were before the fall. And God removes them from the garden And so they were no longer in the place that God had set up to commune with them regularly. And so therefore the purpose that God had given them was hindered because they are not the people as they were supposed to be and they were not in the place that they were supposed to be. And so their purpose hindered. And we could keep going all the way through all the other generations that we've already looked at and we could really keep going all the way up until today and see that all of us from the time of the fall born with the nature prone to sin prone to, to, to not want the relationship that God had set with us and desired for us, but instead to make much of ourselves, to exalt ourselves, to become reliant on ourselves. And so now we come to the point in the story, truly a point in all of human history, where the ramifications for what God is going to do here shape the entire world, not just in this age, but in the age to come, So in the first 11 chapters that we have finished last week, we're covering some 2,000 plus years of human history. 11 chapters, 2,000 plus years. Next 13 chapters, about 100 years. So it got me thinking, uh, you know, if you go to the airport and they have these moving sidewalks, right? The idea is, at least in my mind, you walk on them and then you get to the moving sidewalk and it helps you get somewhere faster if you keep walking. But it's always really interesting to see the person who's on their phone not paying attention, you know, when the end of that moving sidewalk happens and then the ground doesn't move and all of a sudden it's, you know, it's like one of those things. So I picture it's kind of like that, except like times 100. Like we've been cruising along and all of a sudden there's just this immediate change of pace. And when the Lord does that in his word, it's meant for us to pay attention. It's meant for us to be aware that we're going to learn something about who God is, or deepening our understanding of who He is and what He's doing. Just a quick side note, personal for me. If you're on one of those and you choose, I know they're called people movers for some people as well. I kind of think that the person who named it that is lazy. Uh, I still think it should be a moving sidewalk, but if you choose to, you know, just stand still, please just kind of move over, you know, for the rest of us who want to keep going. But that's neither here nor there. That's just a public service announcement for the rest of us who are impatient. Anyway, so we've been moving along and now we're slowing down and we're going to learn something about who God is and how he wants to relate to his people. And so for the next several chapters, we're going to see God working this out. And we're going to see how God takes that which is unworthy and makes them worthy. He's going to bless them and they will become a blessing to others, in this case, to the entire world. Unworthy to worthy, blessed to being a blessing. The zoom in here is going to begin to show how God has plans to redeem all that was broken in the fall. Which is wonderful news, not just from Abram, or not even just for the people that would come from him, the people of Israel, but for every single person in this room today. 
Because in the same way that God calls Abram when he's in sin, so we in sin apart from Christ have the opportunity to respond to God just like Abram did and receive the relationship back with God just like Abram did. So God gives clarity to the relationship that he's going to have with mankind. And 4,000 years ago when this was written still holds true today. In fact, Romans 15 tells us that anything that was written before in the Bible tells us that it was for our instruction for our hope, for our endurance. So as we study these texts, don't just think about them as history. Understand that we are to learn something, to be encouraged by that, and to endure in, in, in light of all that God is teaching us here in Genesis 12. So that brings us to what are we really trying to discover today? We're trying to discover that God calls out Abram as the one through which he will bring blessing to the families of the world. And then for us, in the same way Abram was made worthy by God, through repentance and faith, as we'll see, so too are all who trust in the name of the Lord today. All of us with that same opportunity. Let's dig into verses 1 through 9. And as we look at the first three verses, we see the establishment of a relationship between God and a certain man named Abram. Now, For some of you, that may not be a name that you're as familiar with. It's the same man who will eventually be given the name Abraham, just a few chapters. I'm going to use them probably interchangeably. Just understand we're talking about the same person. The language that the Bible uses when it talks about God establishing a relationship with a people is the language of covenant. And I know while we may not see that word in our text right here, we will see it when it's ratified in chapter 15. So let's quickly just talk about what a covenant is. At its core, a covenant is a solemn oath. It's an agreement that that binds two parties together and then spells out the terms of that relationship. But a covenant isn't simply like a promise that you and I were make. Right, So if I tell you, hey, let's go camping in a couple weeks, and, and so we're going to go camping on Friday, and, and you take off of work, and we're planning for this, and we bought supplies for this, and then Thursday night I call you and go, hey, hey, I'm really sorry. Uh, this other friend called me, and he wants to go to a ball game, and that sounds cooler, so I'm going to do that. Like, that's a promise that I broke. And the consequences of that, I mean, hurt feelings, anger, maybe even the loss of a friendship. But when we talk about a covenant... In the Bible, we're talking about something with even greater stakes involved. Usually something between a greater king and either a lesser king or even a servant. In which the the greater king says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to interact with you in all of these ways so long as you respond accordingly to to what we've laid out in our agreements. And as we'll see in chapter 15, the weightiness of this covenant that God makes here with Abram Death is the consequences if the covenant is broken. That's way more than the promises that we tend to make today. So like every biblical covenant that God establishes with man, this morning this covenant spells out three things that you've already heard from me, but three things that I want us to focus in on today. First, the covenant identifies who are the people of God. Secondly, that identifies the place or the realm in which God's people will experience God's blessing. And thirdly, this covenant lays down the terms and the conditions or the purposes of that relationship. What God promises to do for his people and what he expects from them in return. And the blessings and the punishments and the penalties that follow. God's people 
God's place, God's purpose. Before we look at the people of, the, of this covenant, let's quickly look at the promises in verses 2 and 3 specifically. And you'll notice there are actually seven promises God makes to Abram. In fact, he makes another one in verse 7, and he makes several more in the, ne- in the coming chapters, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But quickly, I want to focus on these seven in verses 2 and 3. First, it says he, make, he promises to make Abram a great nation. Not only will it be a great number of people wandering about, but they will have a place. They'll have a land. They'll have a, a place where all of their people can call home. Secondly, he promises to bless Abram. Now, in the context, the word bless here is speaking more to a financial or material blessings and also speaking to the friendship. Abram will be called a friend of God later in the story. Abram's name will be made great is the third promise. God pledges that Abram's influence will be worldwide, widespread, even across generations to the fact that we're even talking about him today. We don't have time to dig in it too far, but think back just last, just the last chapter. A few weeks ago, we looked at the Tower of Babel the Tower of, or Tower of Babylon, in, in which these people stopped to make a great city for themselves, in which their name would be made great, and everybody in the world would know who they are. And God comes down from heaven, and He scatters them. And yet He's going to do for Abram what humanity tried to do for itself. And every time we try to do what God is supposed to do, it fails miserably. And yet God promises that God, Abram's name will be made great Fourth promise, not only will Abram be blessed, but he will be a blessing to others. The fifth and sixth promises are really two sides of the same coin at the beginning of verse 3. You see that? Abram's friends, Abram's friends will be blessed. Abram's enemies, they're going to be cursed. This is really promises of protection from the Lord. And then our seventh one, lastly, through this great nation that God will establish through Abram's line. All of the families of the world will be blessed. From Abram's line, there will be a global blessing that we all, as part of that, will experience. What wonderful blessings of the Lord that God gives to Abram here. So now that we kind of understand the framework of these blessings, let's look at who the people of the covenant are. Who are the people that are included in this promise to God, or promise to Abram from God? Well, okay, Abram's pretty obvious, right? He's speaking to Abram. Abram's one. By extension, his wife, Sarai. And then it says, God, in verse 7, that God's going to establish this covenant with all of Abram's descendants. In fact, what he says in verse 7 here, if you were to flip to chapter 17, verse 7, he makes even more explicit when he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Abram, his wife Sarai, and all of their descendants for eternity. There's just one kind of tiny problem. Abram's 75 years old. His wife is almost as old as he is. And they have no children. And she cannot have children. And so on the face of it, to be honest, this seems like a cruel joke from the Lord. That he is going to establish a relationship with this old man and his wife that is going to depend on the one thing that they cannot do, which is have children. But for now, we're going to move on and take God at his word. 
And so let's instead look at the place of the covenant. The place where Abram and his wife and these so-called descendants are going to enjoy the blessings of the Lord. When God promised Abram in verse 2 to make him a great nation, inherited with that is the idea of a land, a property, a, 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 a specific home that their people could call their own. When we look in verses 6 and 7, we see that place is Canaan. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the, at the Oak of Morah. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Canaan was a pretty desirable address to have. It existed along major trade routes. In fact, it was even the crossroads for some of them. It had plenty of water, which in that area of the world, that would have been a huge thing. It had fertile grounds everywhere. It was rich in beauty and also rich in an abundance of resources. It was meant to, it's not Eden, right? Like it's not the Garden of Eden, but it's meant, the wording there and later in the Bible as well, is meant to evoke this idea of Eden-like place. And this is what God promises to give all of it to Abram and his descendants. Well, now we run into another problem. Not only is we've already seen the problem which Abram and Sarai don't have any descendants and have no way of getting them, now there's all this, this problem of the them. You know, the ones that are in Canaan, who call it home, who kind of like it, and don't intend on just leaving just so two old retirees can take up residence all by themselves. That's kind of a problem. And so, at least on the surface, it appears that the cruel joke of this covenant to Abram continues. But it's this appearance uh, that, that, that helps us move on. Um, it, it's this appearance that helps us get to the third part of our story. The purpose of the covenant. And as we look at the purpose of the covenant, let's look at the conditions of that covenant. What were the terms, what were the conditions that, that God has placed on this relationship for Abram and Sarai and their hypothetical descendants? Well, there were two, and only two. And that was to repent and to believe. No work had to be performed by Abram. No test, no probation in which the whole relationship hung on the thread of Abram's obedience. Nothing more, nothing less. Repentance and belief. Let's look first at repentance in the first verse of chapter 1. The command in verse 1 for Abram to go, or depending on your version, to leave his father's household and go to the land that God will show him, that kind of sounds like a test. But it's not a test. Not like we're expecting at least. God says, leave, set out, and keep going until I show you where you're going. Now look, don't misunderstand. There is absolutely a step of faith here, an act of faith and trust on the part of Abram. But, but the weight of what's going on with go and leave is something even greater. The first part of verse 1 is a radical call of Abram to repent of every loyalty, every allegiance, everything that he would be a support uh, for his support and his protection that he might rely solely on the God who was calling him. Now, before you think I'm making too much from the simple word go in verse 1, let's make sure we all get on the same page with who Abram was before this call. 
We were introduced last week at the end of chapter 11 to Terah, uh, Abram's father. They were in Ur of the, Chal- uh, the Chaldeans, and they were going to move to Canaan, but they only, he only took them so far as Haran, and, and then they settled there for the rest of Terah's life. Why is that a big deal? Well, Ur, you see, was a, was a center for idol worship specifically of the moon god. And Haran actually was like an outpost of that. So when we, we need to understand that they're not just simply living in a place of idol worship, Joshua 24 tells us that when God calls, when God calls Abram, in fact, it says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates rivers and they worshiped other gods. When God called Abram, he was an idol worshiper. Abram wasn't simply being called to just set out and start something new in a new place, although God God would take him to that new place. Abram was being called to forsake everything he knew, everything he trusted in, everything he had hoped in, everything he had held dear. And so in verse 1, we see what amounts to like three concentric circles of what he's being called to leave. With each one, the punch of the command gets harder, the, the cost of obedience Greater, And so you see in the first circle, the most outer circle, he's called to leave behind the land or the country in which he had spent much of his life. The place where he knew, the place that he had an identity from. He knew its customs. He thrived there. And then secondly, as it gets a little tighter, it's the extended network of family and friends. Now, we don't probably connect quite as well with this one as they would have here. We don't live in the same kind of society, a patriarchal society, where your extended family and your network wasn't simply this cool group of people you got to know and would help you. They were how you did life. There were no armies. There were no police forces. There was nothing to give you protection and help you thrive in commerce except for these kindred, these groups of people. And so God is saying, leave that. So even, Abraham, your protection, your safety net will be severed. And then lastly, of course, the innermost circle that God calls him to leave is his father's house, that most intimate group of people, the ones who knew him well, who loved him and would stick by him no matter what because they're his family. God calls Abram to leave that. Why? Couldn't God have called him right in there? God doesn't always call us when we come to Christ to leave our fathers and mothers, does he? Not every time. God's not somehow getting Abram off the hook from being a good citizen or or honoring his father and mother. No, but what he is saying is you have to leave all that you know, all that you've put trust in, all that you've worshipped, and follow after me and me alone. And so for the first time, Abram was called to acknowledge that there was a greater obligation, there was a greater allegiance than anything he had ever known before. And the obligation and privilege to worship the one true God. It's the first condition of the covenant. Repentance. And it remains the first condition for anybody, for all of human history that would come after him. Anyone that would enter a relationship with God must first repent and turn away from all they've hoped in and place their, well, the second condition, their faith in the Lord himself. When he leaves, we read in verse 4, he does, right? So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him. 
He took with him his wife. That's probably a good place to start. He took with him his nephew, Lot. We'll get more about him later. And it took all the possessions and, and all the people that he had acquired, and they set out for the place that God had for him, which we know as Canaan. And when we read these verses, especially those of us in the room that know the rest of the story, we know what God's going to do. We know the blessings that are going to come. It's easy for us to miss sometimes the magnitude of this step of faith by Abram to leave all that he knew. God had just promised him wonderful, kingly promises. And he leaves unsure of how God's going to do it. It'd be pretty easy. I'm sure some of you in here are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, it just said he's taking with him all his people and all of his possessions. I mean, this guy's pretty wealthy, although he'll become more wealthy. So is it really that hard for him to leave? Well, remember, there are two elements of this covenant that God hasn't made good on yet. Before Abraham goes out from his father's household, there are two. The first, he doesn't know where he's going. God promises him land, but doesn't know where it is. We know in verse 7, it's Canaan, which sounds great, except again, we're reminded that there are people there that are not so happy for him to come with his whole entourage and just take over. But more importantly, the second thing that God has not made good on yet is Abram takes his wife, Abram takes his nephew. Abram takes all of these people that were with him. But he doesn't take a son because he doesn't have one. All of the promises that God had promised to Abram hinge on the one thing that he doesn't have when he sets out, and yet he sets out anyway. God, Abram takes God at his word, and he acts in firm belief that God who was calling him is the God who was able to fulfill every promise he had made to him even when he didn't know the how of how God was going to do it, the how of the promise. But he trusted God anyway. Look, Abram wasn't this perfect follower of the Lord. We're going to see in the coming chapters that he struggles between faith and stumbling and faltering in his faith and, and not trusting in the Lord and then having great things of trust, faith in the Lord. But in chapter 15, verse 6, which we'll get to in a few weeks, this simple trust in the Lord, this acting out of that trust... God says in 15.6 that he credits Abraham's belief as righteousness. And what that means is when God is interacting with Abram, he sees him as someone who is no longer his enemy, but has been made right with the creator God of the universe. Not based on the obedience, though he would obey, but based simply on his trust in God to be who he is. Two conditions, repent and believe. So again, let's turn to the promises, or the, the purposes of this covenant. We said, uh, we looked at the promises earlier, but when you get to the very last part of verse 3, the greatest of all of these blessings, the focus is greatest on that he will be a blessing to all of the families of the world. We see that God called out a specific man who would eventually become a great nation, and he would bless him, but it moves beyond that man. It moves beyond his family. And it moves to every single family, not just on the face of the earth then, but everyone that would ever come after that. And friends, that's where we enter this story. 
See, we've been tracing from the very beginning the seed of the woman who would come, who would crush the head of Satan. And from Abram's line would come eventually the Savior Jesus, who would, God himself, take on human flesh, be born of a woman, live the perfect life that you and I cannot and do not live. Heaping sin, uh, heaping uh, condemnation and wrath upon ourselves. And yet Jesus died in your place and for you with your penalty for sin put on him instead, that when he died, you too could be blessed by the Lord, not because you have done all of the right things. If you think in this morning you're good enough in here, let me lovingly try to say to you, you are not good enough. In fact, the Bible would say you are not good at all. And I don't mean that mainly. I mean that out of love because we're all in the same boat with you. But there was one that came from Abram's line who died in your place and for you so that you too would repent and believe, could enjoy the blessing that Abraham enjoyed, not just for today, but forevermore. And from that, his line became a blessing to the entire world as as the declaration, as the proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, come to save sinners, is declared all throughout the world and people all over the world responding to that. This blessing that God promised, the purpose of this covenant... We enjoy today those who are in Christ. Now let me turn our attention just for a minute as we close, as we finish up this passage. To what does it mean? What does it look like for those of us who have already placed genuine faith in the Lord? If you've already placed genuine faith in the Lord, you are to be characterized by obedience and by worship of the one true God. Look at the rest of verse 7 and verse 9 through verse 9. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, he built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. Obedience. Abraham set out as the Lord had called him to do. We saw that in the beginning of the story. We're going to continue to see Abram continue to walk by faith. Not perfectly. He's going to falter. But God is going to continue and sustain him and see him through as he walks forward and steps out again and again in faith. God sustains him as he obeys. In the second half of verse 7 that I just read, after God has shown him and says, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, Abram builds an altar. And he worships the Lord. An altar was a usually elevated structure made of stone and wood, a place that offerings, sometimes sacrifices, would be put upon them. They were meant to be a place where in time was fixed, in time and space, a place where God encountered his people. And so Abram builds this to the Lord. In fact, does another one in verse 8. And the reason I highlight this for you in terms of worship is I want to contrast in building an altar with what happens in the rest of verses 8 and 9. An altar was meant to be something permanent. Something that when they built it and they would leave and they would come back around the time again, they would see it and be reminded of what God had done for them. And so he built these permanent structures as an act of worship to God. Remember, God promised Abram the land of Canaan. But as we'll see through the rest of Abram's life, God never gives him that land. He gives it to his descendants, but not to Abram. In fact, when Abram dies, he owns a small burial plot for him and his wife 
and some of his relatives after him in Hebron, which is in Canaan, but he didn't have the whole land. In fact, as we continue to look over the next hundred years of Abram's life, he's, he's not much more than a wanderer, setting up camp and picking it up and setting it up again and picking it up and sometimes along the way building these altars. Look, the reason I bring that up, not because you may care so much about him pitching his tent and, and setting up camp and all of that, but it's important for our worship for two things, two reasons. And the first is you are to worship the Lord wherever you are. If Abram had waited until God gave him Canaan, Abram never would have worshipped the Lord. Because it was not God's plan for him to have Canaan in his lifetime, but given it to his descendants. So often, church, we sometimes we wait to worship the Lord until we think we're at the place in which he's called us, or the place that will be better, or the place of greater blessing. And so we miss the fact that we are called in the moment to be worshipping the Lord. Abram worshipped the Lord wherever he was. In verse 7, God says, look, I'm showing you this. Abram says, I'm worshipping you. In verse 8, he's moving around, and then he worships the Lord again, and he calls on the name of the Lord. We are called to worship God wherever we are. And the second part of that is, not only are we to worship where we are, but we are to hold tightly to what is known and what lasts. We are to hold loosely to that which has been trusted to us for a little while, but doesn't last. Abram built an altar, really two, in our passage today. But he pitched his tent. God had called him and entrusted with him the things of his possessions that he would move around. And all the while, Abram's holding those loosely. You put a tent up, you take it back down, you move around. He's not holding out for only where God may eventually bless him. He's holding all those places that God's going to take him loosely. God, wherever you want me to go, it's yours. But that which I know to be true, like in verse 7, that you are a God who will do what you said you will do, he builds an altar and he holds tightly, to, even though it is unseen, but what he knows to be true. Church, the sooner we can learn how to hold loosely that which doesn't last and hold tightly to that which lasts forever, is the sooner that we will learn and have closer communion with the God who made us and have peace, the likes of which this world cannot offer. So let your obedience and let your worship define and characterize your relationship with the Lord. Look, we began this morning talking about the fact that we live in a culture that thinks it can define the relationship that it ought to have with God. But we've seen rather it is God who has initiated and told us how he will interact with us. From the very beginning, God set the terms of how he would relate to the people that he created and how we ought to respond to that. That he would be our God and we his people. And then sin entered the world and it changed all of that. And yet it didn't. Because God still desired and will have a relationship with his people. And though Abraham could only see in hope of the seed that would come, that would crush the head of Satan. We on this side of the cross already know that God fulfilled his promise in sending the one born of a woman who would crush the head of Satan when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. But it's not in the knowing the details of how God would fulfill his plan. Whether it's the grand one of the grand narrative of the Bible or even the small one of your everyday life. It's not in knowing the details. We enter a relationship with God in the same way that Abram did. 
We repent of our sins. We turn away from trusting in the things that don't last and are against God. And we turn and place all of our trust in the one true God who keeps his promises. Look, if you're here this morning and you can't say that there's a time in your life in which you know that you turned away from sin and you turned towards the Lord. And look, I know I'm speaking to a lot of people that grew up in church. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Uh, maybe, but let me just be gracious here. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church. It doesn't matter if you've heard these stories a hundred times. It doesn't matter if your parents or your grandparents are Christians. Each of us will have to have a time in our life, if we are in the Lord, where we have turned from our sin and pursued and trusted God in the same way that Abraham left what God didn't have for him and trusted fully in who God said he was. If that's you, we invite you, of course, to give your life to the Lord, to put your trust in him alone today. If you have questions about that, you can talk to myself or Pastor Cody or any of the other people in here that would love to chat with you about that. And I also realize I'm talking to a lot of people in here who've already entered that relationship. But we need to not get over the fact that we were like Abram before he was called in sin. Apart from the Lord's work, we were, we were idol worshipers, maybe not of the moon God, but maybe of ourselves, where we relied on ourselves to be enough. We, were, we exalted ourselves above everything else. In the same way, we need to be reminded that from Abraham's line would come the one who would make a, a way for us to be made right with God, to be put back in the relationship that God had made for us. And the way we entered that relationship is the same way. We turned from our sins and we pursued and trusted in God. But just like in the day of your salvation, even today you're still called to walk by faith. We're going to see in the story of Abram, he continues to have opportunities to turn away from that which is wrong. He's going to have to turn away from his lack of trust and continue to daily trust in the Lord. We are called to do the very same thing. We are called every day to step out in faith. I don't know what's in front of you. I don't know what you have going on in your lives. I don't know if it's a big step of faith or a small step of faith of what God may be putting in, for, in front of you, but we can't always wait until we get to the right place. We can't always wait until we know all of the how of what God is going to do in our lives. Instead, we are to trust Him and walk by faith every single day. This passage invites us and calls us to trust in the Lord, whether it's for the first time like Abram's here in verse 1, or whether it's the thousandth time in your life, we are called to trust in the Lord as we eagerly wait on Christ's return. And then in that way, we will be a blessing, not just to ourselves, but to the entire world. Pray with me. God, you are the author of life. You made all that is. Guys, we've been working through your word. We have seen your steadfast love for a people who would reject you over and over and over again. And even in this story, we see that Abram wasn't somebody worthy of you using him. We could look at other stories like Moses that, and he's at the burning bush and, and he's complaining when you called him that he can't speak very well as if somehow you didn't know that or somehow you needed him to be a great orator to do the mighty things that you did through him. God, we thank you for these stories as a reminder that you are a God who fulfills your promises. 
You're a God who makes us worthy, not because we acted and did enough right things, but because you sent eventually in our story, but for us today, we know that you sent your son into this world to live the perfect life in the perfect relationship with you that we cannot and, 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 and reject having. And yet, he was killed on a cross, not with his own sin, but with our sin, so that, you, God, you counted that as payment enough that all who would repent of their sin and turn to faith in Christ would be saved. God, we will spend today and all of eternity worshiping you for that reality. But God, I also pray that knowing there's got to be at least somebody in this room who today has never done that, who's never turned away from the things they're hoping for in this world and placed all of their hope. I mean, Abram left everything with no going back. He didn't keep stuff back so he could come back when he felt like it was going too hard. He left it all. God, there are people in this room that have not done that today and placed all of their saving faith in you. God, this morning I pray your Holy Spirit will do what he does and work and in the hearts of the people here, that today may be a day of salvation for them. And God, for those of us who have already done that, God, may you help us to continually, day in and day out, fight the temptation to take back what is yours, to, to focus instead on our own exaltation of ourselves and, our, and rely only on ourselves when we are called to make much of your name and to rely solely on you. God, this morning, may you help us do that. May you help us do that today. May you help us do that as we leave from here. And may we, like Abram was called, be a blessing to our neighbors, to our, to our roommates, to our, to our co-workers, to, our, to, to whoever it is that you have in front of us. God, may we be a blessing by displaying and speaking the gospel to those who need to hear it. God, we love you. We praise you because we know this is the stuff that you are doing and that we get to join in with that. God, we love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.